So Ephesians chapter 6, let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer before we get started. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you so much for this day, for your grace, for your mercy. We ask for sanctification. We ask for repentance. We ask for your glory. Father, we ask that you'd conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be well-pleasing in your eyes as a result of being more like him. Pray that you would allow our hearts and our minds to be captivated by your glory in this time, that we would be drawn into close, personal, and intimate fellowship and communion with you as you speak to us in your holy word that you have preserved for us throughout all these millennia. We pray, Father, that you'd grant us understanding, grant us accuracy in our understanding of this passage of Scripture, and I pray, pray that you would be diligent to provide us with the ways in which we can apply this, Father, and that we would then in turn be diligent to glorify you with it. We praise you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and we'll go through verse 9. It says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So as we mentioned fairly briefly last week, we're getting into a portion of scripture that in and of itself may not seem very relevant. We've looked at very much so in the preceding passages at the relevancy of these portions of scripture as we recognize we're not married and that there was a passage of scripture that dealt with marriage and we saw the benefit of what that would instill within us, the hope of something yet future and the hope of something that we would see as a valuable thing, or e even if singleness is our thing and marriage is not going to be our thing at any point in time, that we would still recognize the high value of this institution. And then we saw last week specifically how there is a specific emphasis upon youth that are being presented within this context. And within the beginning portion of Ephesians chapter 6, that our main focus should be ultimately the glory of God, but our main focus as youth should be to demonstrate the glory of God on display within our lives as we are obedient to our parents in everything. That we don't just selectively obey our parents. We don't obey our parents only in those moments that seem, that we would seem to deem to be fit opportunities for obedience to parents, but that it would be every single thing that would possibly come down the pipeline of our lives in our relationship with our parents, as long as we are under their authority and under their headship, that we would obey them, not obeying them in sin, but obeying them in everything else. And then we get to this one subject here in verses 5 through 9 that specifically addresses the idea of slaves and masters. And while I don't think, though I could be mistaken, but I don't think anybody in here is enslaved to anybody or anybody in here owns any slaves, there seems to be in that sense maybe not as much relevancy within these few verses here to our particular lives as this isn't necessarily the issue. As we go through our lives, it doesn't seem like we're in our day and age and in the time frame in which we are living, dealing very much so with slaves and masters. We recognize that that's still a problem around the world. This still definitely exists. It can also take the form of existence of slaves and masters through human trafficking, but that's not the specific emphasis for us this evening because that's not necessarily something that we are involved in. And that's not an institution that this passage of Scripture is necessarily addressing at all. That's just a sinful thing completely. And that's not what the Apostle Paul would be addressing here. It would be the understanding that you would have, especially in the context of household relationships, that there would be a servant who is living within your home, who is a specific slave of a family, who is rendering service unto a family, even within the household of the family. But even with that distinction, with that classification, 
there is still then the reality that how do I approach this passage of Scripture, especially as a member of Face First Youth Ministry, with any kind of applicational value, given the fact that I'm not a slave, I'm not a master, I'm not enslaved to anybody, and I don't own any slaves in my life. How do I approach this passage of Scripture? So we can begin to recognize that we are not slaves, we are not masters, but there are still some very invaluable tools that are presented within this passage of Scripture that are important to our context, relevant to our lives now, and phenomenally applicable to the things that we go through and that the things that we will go through. And of course, it's very important to bear that in mind, that this has a specific context in reference to slavery, but that it broadens itself and the context itself indeed tells us to begin to apply this to individuals that are not enslaved, individuals who are free. And we'll examine all of that here this evening and begin to figure out what exactly this is talking about. So we're not going to focus specifically on the subject of politics. We recognize in our nation that we have come a significant distance from slavery within our nation. We're well aware of American history. We're well aware of, of this subject of slavery that was a huge political issue, especially in regards to the Civil War, regards to many different civil rights movements. This was a phenomenally big, hot-button hot political issue within our nation. But it's for us, especially within the locality of our lives, maybe not necessarily as big of a principle here. But when we look at the context here, we're recognizing that the Apostle Paul is instructing us in every single area of life to live as the new us. And there's also this other realm, slavery, where there is still the need to live as the new you. And so you could conclude from this right away and immediately that the new you, living as a new Christian, as a new creation, living as a blood-bought, sanctified and being sanctified Christian, that it is supposed to affect every single area of your lives. It's not as though you could pinpoint some specific area. For example, I'm a slave, and so my relationship to my master is not necessarily a culturally acceptable relationship. So therefore, in this specific context, I shouldn't have to live as the new me. And now you can begin to see that if that's the case, then we brought in that issue, we brought in that excuse to other areas of our lives, and we say, here is another place that I don't need to live as a new Christian. Here's another place over here that I don't need to live as a new Christian. In my school setting, I don't need to live as a new creation. In my work setting, I don't need to live as a new creation. In my relationships outside the church, I don't need to live as a new creation. And the snowball effect continues to go if we have the conclusion that there are some areas that I don't specifically need to worry about living as a new creation. The Apostle Paul turns to the subject of slaves and masters to say, this is an all-pervasive, life-permeating reality that you live as a new creation. Slaves and masters, this relates even to you. The new creation that you are as a Christian is the totality of your lives. There isn't any area of your life that you shouldn't be living as the new you, and slaves and masters is no exception. And so if that's not even an exception, because, I mean, you think about that, and you think that should be an area because that's a socially unacceptable, taboo kind of a relationship. That should be a gray area that would allow somebody to not necessarily live as saved as they could be living, like for mother and daughter, for father and son, parents and children, husbands and wives. Those are definitely areas that should be affected. The areas of congregating believers, that's an area that should be affected. Those are the areas of new creation living. But beyond that, if there's a socially unacceptable relationship of a slave and a master, in that specific regard, no, that's, that's kind of that gray area and we shouldn't expect them in that relationship to live that way. The same could have been exactly said about marriages where somebody's married to an unbeliever. They're not married to a Christian. Don't worry about it. That's kind of then a gray area of a wife submitting to her husband or a husband loving her wife because the spouse is an unbeliever. 
Of course, 1 Corinthians 7 covers that specific reality that as long as they're wanting to stay within the marriage as an unbeliever, that marriage needs to continue as a marriage and you as a believer should be fulfilling that role. My parents aren't saved. There's a gray area where I could begin to utilize an excuse to attempt to justify not living as a Christian, not living as a new creation. My father's not a believer, so therefore I'll only listen to my mother. My mother's not a believer, therefore I'll only listen to my father. But again, the main emphasis was if it's not sin, these are relationships of living as a new creation, and you are to fulfill the biblical passages of Scripture within those relationships. All pervasive, totally permeating in the entirety of a person's life. And when it comes to the subject of slaves and masters, we get a representation and an example of yet another area of our lives that we could conclude is not a place to be living or as a need to be living as a new creation. And yet Paul is saying every single area of every single person's life live as a new creation. Live as the new you that has been the subject that we've been looking at. So this evening, looking at slaves and masters, youth can learn a phenomenally beneficial approach to living as a Christian. There's going to be subject matter that's talked about within our passage of Scripture and indeed is talked about in plenty of other passages of Scripture that are not slave-master-related portions of Scripture. And these are going to be tools that are uniquely valuable to your life and that are uniquely beneficial to your life and are especially attractive to your life. Much of what's pertaining to this context could be boiled down to a specific subject of humility. It takes a super humble person, which by the way is impossible for you to be, so that's where you need Christ the humblest individual who has ever lived, who is continuing to live, you need His strength and power and grace to begin to affect you, to begin to live as is mentioned within our context here. And so that you would be constantly making sure with these specific attitudes that your desire for Christ exceeds your desire for approval from others. That's going to be a huge subject matter that we have to tackle within this passage of Scripture is your relationship to others and your desire to please Christ versus your desire to receive praise. And now you can see even more so why this is such a important passage of scripture when it comes to youth because there is a main problem that some of you if not all of you would struggle with and that is what does somebody else think of me specifically do they think highly of me do they think negatively of me it's not a pure sheer curiosity question where I'm saying does somebody else think about me in a certain way I'm just curious but does somebody think about me in a certain way because I want to know if it's good or bad, and if it's bad, I need to learn what it is that I should do in order for their perception of me to be good. That is, surprisingly, and we'll explain that, one of the biggest issues within this passage of Scripture. How it is that a slave should operate, and should operate within the presence of peers. What is it they should be doing what is it that they should be avoiding? What is the attitudes that they should be having? What are the behaviors that they should be behaving with? What is it that's going on within this passage of Scripture here in relationship to slaves and masters? And it pertains specifically to the idea that there is a lifestyle to be avoided because of what it receives and a lifestyle to be pursued because of what it receives. And there's a distinction that's going to be created. There's a line that's going to be drawn within the sand. Youth on one side, youth on another side. Some of us on one side, the rest of us on another side. That there is this side that would exist. These are individuals who seek to be pleasers of other individuals in order that they would receive 
praise, in other words, that they would receive accolades, they would receive accommodations, they would be spoken highly of, they would be the center of their living. That's why they would do anything, whether good or bad. They would do it, whatever it is, and in our context even, that they would do something that's good because they would want to receive the accolades themselves. And then here is a selfless group of individuals in the right side, And in this specific camp over here, they do things with the specific motivation of God being worshipped, God receiving praise, God receiving the accolades, God receiving the attention, and God's reputation as being most important. There's a line that is being drawn in the sand this evening. So ultimately, the main emphasis upon what it is that we're looking at within this text, and there's going to be a benefit, there's going to be a blessing, there's going to be that higher quality of life that we looked at last week as being a youth who obeys your parents, you receive blessedness, you receive this shoring up, this strengthening, this blessing upon any relationship that you have, and then upon the rest of your life. And it's even extended for the purposes of being able to experience this constant blessing and flow of God. And then we're talking about something within our passage of Scripture this evening that is a reward for doing this kind of behavior. Don't miss out on being rewarded. Don't miss out on receiving what it is that the Lord would be giving to you. Whether it's received now or whether it's received in eternity future is completely irrelevant because if the Lord is going to give you a reward and this is in addition to your salvation, then this reward is going to be magnificent. And I might not even necessarily know what it is. There's a lot of times in the New Testament where rewards aren't specifically mentioned, but they are mentioned. And I think in some ways they're not specifically mentioned because of the magnitude of these rewards that when you receive them, they're mind-blowing and most of them could be eternity future. But don't miss out on these things. Don't miss out on these rewards. Don't miss out on the kind of life that could be lived by applying these specific principles. So if you'll notice within our context, it starts out with this term bondservant. That's the Greek word doulos, which specifically means slaves. The most common term, the most common usage of this term would be somebody who was born into slavery, somebody who didn't have a choice to become a slave, somebody who was a slave from their birth. Their only opportunity to stop being a slave is when they die. That's the common usage of the term do loss. That's the common understanding of what's going on here. The Bible also afforded the means of an individual, if you owed a debt and you couldn't pay the debt, in secular society, you could be killed, you could be thrown into slavery, different things like that. And the scripture allowed for the opportunity to save somebody's life by bringing them in as a member of your household and making them effectively a doulos at that point. So this is somebody who is a slave. It's not just simply a servant. It's not just simply somebody that you bring into your house and you're saying, I'm going to pay you a fair wage for duties rendered within my home. I want you to make me a sandwich. I want you to turn on the TV for me. Of course, this is first century, so it probably wouldn't be turn on the TV. It'd probably be, please bring me the manuscripts of whatever it is that I could read in some horrific language that doesn't have any spaces or capitalization or different things like that. That's what you would end up be doing. Being, see what happens? You can't even speak right after you talk about manuscripts. That's what, that, that, that could be a possibility. But that's not the case within our context of somebody who's a servant within your household. This is somebody who's a slave. And they're stuck with you normally for the duration of their life or if there's an opportunity for that debt to have been worked off and they could be released, but that would be for a particularly long period of time in many different cases. But again, the most often usage is somebody who's born a slave. The only way they could stop being a slave is if they died. These slaves are the focus now of new Christian living and in the focus of these slaves, living as the new them, living as these new creations, they're given a particularly bizarre command. Paul turns his attention to slaves. You're talking about husbands, 
You're talking about wives. Prior than that, you're talking about people within the church. And you're even saying, submit to each other. If you're a Christian, if you're within the church, we should be regarding each other as more important. And we should actually be treating each other as slaves and masters within the church. Galatians chapter 6 even says that. Using the term doulos, it says serve one another, be enslaved to one another. But that's kind of this really nice concept and principle of coming within a church and trying to be there for each other, have each other's backs, and minister to each other. That seems like such a great thing. That's a loving thing. That's a Christ-like thing. And then you talk about marriage, and that's a wonderful institution. It's, a, it's an insanely difficult institution, but it's an incredibly rewarding institution. Parents and children, wonderful relationship, great relationship that exists, also a very difficult relationship to participate in, but also an insanely valuable relationship to participate in. The returns on these relationships have been so incredible and so wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you're going to tell a slave, you're going to look to somebody who is specifically indebted to another person, and you're going to tell them, remain as a slave. And you're going to tell them, whatever your master says, do it. How anti-American. How anti-modern, liberal, western, American culture to say to a slave, be enslaved and obey. Particularly bizarre way of living. So countercultural. You could probably get millions and millions of Americans lobbying against this specific passage of Scripture if there were still slaves and masters and start telling people, get out of your homes, you're liberated, don't do this. Of course, at the end of the day, this passage of Scripture is not saying slavery is okay. That's an atheistic interpretation of this passage of Scripture. It doesn't say slavery is okay. It recognizes that at this portion in time, slavery was an unavoidable fact and an unavoidable reality. And so as long as it existed, and as long as you're a slave, there is a specific way of doing things, of living your life, because there's a specific emphasis upon what it means to be a new creation. And because of how radically different you would be as a slave obeying your master from a specific motivation. From a specific heartfelt sincere motivation to be obedient to an earthly master. Not in sin. Not through fear of your masters. He's not saying you guys are getting beat left and right, because of your disobedience to your masters, here's a way to experience some temporary relief from this hellacious institution of slavery and master that you're in. Here's a specific way to endure that. Just do what you're told, and this way you won't get beat. It's not for fear of their masters. Nor does he say, don't do this because people will look upon you obeying your masters and they'll think, wow, there's something amazing about that person. Let me give some accolades. Let me give some commendations. Let me praise this person who is a slave, who is is being obedient to their master. He said, don't do that. Don't try to please people. Don't even try to be a pleaser of your earthly master. You're not doing this as a slave so that that way your master will go home satisfied saying, I've got the most obedient slaves that you would ever see. He's not saying that. You say what it says to obey these earthly masters with fear and trembling, but he says to do so with a sincere heart as you would Christ. When Paul talks about fear and trembling, he never mentions fear and trembling in relationship to somebody who's human. He doesn't say, be in fear and trembling towards other people so that that way they can earn your, you can earn their respect, you can earn their admiration or something ridiculous of that effect. When Paul talks about fear and trembling, he uses it to describe a particularly worshipful, reverential attitude and behavior that one performs in relationship to God specifically. That's his fear and trembling. 
So he's saying, you slaves, what will set you apart, because you are set apart as a Christian, you are sanctified, so there has to be something abundantly different about you than those around you as a slave. This means you are distinct. You are different than the other slaves. You've been bought with a price. You're a new creation. If you're a slave, that means if I were to compare you with the lifestyles and the actions and the attitudes of other slaves, there is going to be a distinctly remarkable difference between your slavery and somebody else's slavery. And even go so far as to say there's a distinct difference between your quality of life during your slavery versus somebody else's quality of life during their slavery. We've talked about this before in relationship to youth. There's something phenomenally different about you than the world youth. Again, it's that same dilemma, it's that same problem, it's that same struggle that every single one of us could go through at every single point of our lives. It doesn't get better when you're no longer considered a youth and you get to be in grown-up church, you get to be in adult church, and now you're in this like new category where things don't seem to be the same. You still deal with the same issues. You still deal with cliques. You still deal with people that don't like you. You still deal with approval. You still deal with everything literally that you're dealing with as a youth individual. It doesn't go away. You still struggle with these same problems. But as far as classification of a youth individual, you are somebody for whom Christ died. You are somebody for whom Christ shed His blood. You are somebody for whom He intercedes with the Father so that wrath is ultimately taken off from you as it was placed upon Christ and you are now given newness of life. There's something different about you. And it pertains to holiness. It pertains to worship. It pertains to living your life in fear and trembling before God. To be somebody who is fearful and trembling is somebody who is cautious about the way that they live their lives. They're cautious about the things that they do because the primary concern upon their lives is not the things that they desire, but it's the thing that God desires. They don't, when they're weighing the options of things to do in life, they don't start with, what is it that I want to do? They start with asking the question, what is it that God wants me to do? They never ask, what would Jesus do? Because they have the Word of God that says what Jesus did. That's what they want. What is it that Jesus did? How do I apply that within this particular situation so that I can live like He lived? What is it that God wants me to do here? And every single one of those answers to every single question of every single circumstance that pertains to the question, what is it that God wants me to do? The answer from the Word of God, He wants you to be holy. He doesn't want you to sin. He wants you to live for His glory. Then when that's installed, when that's in place, when that's established within your life, then you've got so many options that are freed up because you've done the diligence to eliminate the sin options. What is it that God wants me to do? Fear and trembling before the Lord is very cautious activity, very cautious thinking, very cautious behavior that seeks to be pleasing to God first and then from God's pleasure they derive their own. If God's pleased with me, that causes me to be pleased. If God's happy with me, that causes me to be happy. If God is joyful around the things that I am doing, that causes me to be joyful. And we can have, as established within Scripture, a wonderful, fantastic template of how to achieve that. This is sin. I don't want that. This is sanctified. I want that. This is sin. I don't want that. I can do this without sinning. Therefore, that's what I want. Slaves, do not obey your masters from any other motivation than to stop and fearfully, tremblingly, worshipfully, reverently worship 
God in your relationship with him and avoid attitudes and behaviors that are irreverent towards God. That's the motivation for a slave to obey his master. That's the motivation for a youth to live as a youth. It's the same thing. Now there's two important things to keep in mind within our context as we look at this. We can recognize that the Greek language, which the Bible was originally written in Greek, the New Testament at least, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with some portions in Aramaic, but the New Testament as we are reading was originally written in Greek, and the Greek language has a range of meanings when it comes to words. It's called a semantic domain if you ever have a linguistics test And if you do, I will pray for you because God help us all. Linguistics is horrible. But if that's the case, semantic domains, range of meanings, and in a context, a word can have a range of meanings as long as those meanings fit what's in the context. So when we're looking at this particular context, the term slave can also mean somebody who has pledged their service to somebody else. A master can also be somebody, really anybody, who specifically has authority over you. So beyond just simply the fact of the translation talking about slaves and masters, there is a wider scope of applicational value when it comes to doulos and kurios, slaves and masters, And in that, we could begin to see that there are many different scenarios within our lives that provide the applicational value. If I have pledged my service to somebody, if somebody is in authority over me, these are the things that I should be doing as a new creation. I should be submitting to, that's our context, submission, obedience. I should be submitting to the individual who has authority over me. Because I'm being reverential and worshipful towards God, and this is something that would be well-pleasing to Him as it's a command within His Holy Word. To be even more specific, a workplace is a fantastic example of this. The Bible even says other places that you are to submit to the authority of every human institution. Any institution, and this could exactly be you walk into a store and they've got a policy that you think is abundantly ridiculous, that's a human institution, abide by it while you're there. Whatever it is. School places could be phenomenal examples of that, though I don't think kids are willingly subjecting themselves to the service of their teachers or their parents, especially if they're homeschooled. That's like the worst place to do that. That's so taboo. Don't submit to your parents in homeschooling situations. You see, again, we've got that we've got that mindset that allows us to either, if we're aware of it or we're not, to say this is an area that's okay for me to not live as a new creation. And in effect, the Apostle Paul here has covered literally every range, even with his specificity of household slaves, the genericness of the semantic domain of the words that he is using covers so much more. Abide in these principles. If you are in service to somebody else, if somebody is an authority within your life, abide by the principles that they have set into place. If it's sin, discard them. If it's not sin, obey them. And the reason being is not because the people in authority are valuable to you, but it's because God and salvation and worship and living holy, these are the principles that are valuable to you. So because of that, you will abide by these institutions. Second principle to keep in mind, verse 8, tells us that Whoever does good receives back from the Lord. And the context obviously defines what is good. And what is good is a sincere heart, fear and trembling, worshipfulness, not being a people pleaser, not looking for others to give you approval or praise or satisfaction, but that you would focus specifically upon your relationship to God and through goodwill, through benevolence, through whatever it is, a kind-hearted attitude, a pure-hearted attitude, all these different 
different things are what's good, and then therefore, knowing that whatever any good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or he's free. So Paul has given us that license to be able to take this passage of Scripture and say, if I'm not a slave, this still applies. If I don't have somebody necessarily in an earthly master sense, in a service authority sense, to render my obedience, the attitudes still need to be there. You still need to be somebody who trembles, who has fear before God, who has a worshipful and respectful attitude and and actions in the presence of God, and that from your heart, you don't want to deceive people, you don't want to take advantage of people, you just simply want to render your service to the Lord. If you'll notice from Hebrews chapter 6, some of you guys that have been going through hermeneutics with me uh, have seen this passage of Scripture over and over and over again because it's such a wonderful example of looking at something within its context and allowing the context to define what it means. But in Hebrews chapter 6, it gives you two groups of individuals. In fact, the entirety of Scripture is going to give you two groups of individuals. You've got those that believe in the Lord. You've got those that reject Him. Those that are on their way to paradise. Those that are on their way to condemnation. There's a line that's drawn in the sand in that respect as well. You only have two groups of people. There's not this happy neutral that you can belong in. Where you're sort of like, well, I'm not as good as a Christian, but I'm definitely not as bad as Hitler. So, therefore, I'm just kind of sitting right here in the middle and... God's going to focus on these guys and He really wants to bless them and God's going to focus on these guys and He really wants to kill them. So, that's that's it. But I'm in the middle and it's it's no sweat. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. You can't be riding the fence. There is only for God or against God. So in Hebrews chapter 6, it paints a picture of these two kinds of individuals. And it says there's this kind of individual that experiences so many amazing and wonderful things. It even talks about the fact that they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've experienced the heavenly gift. And as a result of experiencing that, they can even enter into covenant community. They can come into the community of believers like youth can come into youth group and sit amongst the youth group. They can listen to the word of God. They can listen to God speaking They can listen to the scriptures. They can listen to so many amazing things. They can then experience the benevolence of other Christians. They can be blessed by other Christians. They can participate in the work of the Holy Spirit, even help to spread the gospel. I mean, God could use Balaam's donkey. Of course he could use me. There's always that good motivation to get into ministry. I'm kidding. That went over some people's heads. But I can sit amongst other Christians and experience some of the exact same things that they're experiencing and not actually be a Christian. And then he says in the book of Hebrews that they, especially when suffering comes, fall away. They don't want to do this anymore. They're done with this. And that's often a case for youth groups where you spend so much time doing youth-oriented activities. You've even gone on the youth missions trips, should they exist. You've gone out and done homeless ministries. You've gone out and done this. You've done that. You've done this. You've spread the gospel. You've evangelized. You've witnessed with your friends. You've done all of these different things that are generic Christian things that can be done that don't require salvation. And then hardship comes, or you go to college and you're faced with the worldviews that are existing there, and you're struggling because you didn't have that firm foundational root in the gospel and that firm foundational root in the fear and trembling and worshipful reverential attitudes and actions of God. You didn't have salvation so you bailed. You gave up. And then he focuses his attention on another group of people that do a particular activity with a particular motivation. And he says this convinces me of your salvation. When this is present, the author of Hebrews is saying, not just me, but others, he says, we are convinced. We are convinced 
that within your life there are things that accompany salvation. And these are superior things. These are excellent things. There is still the service. There is still the love for God's people. There is still this attitude of I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it, but there's a specific distinction. I'm doing it because I love God and because I desire to worship Him. My attitude is God first, people second. And he says, that's what convinces me of your salvation. That's what makes it known and makes it clear and makes it evident to me is because your motivation for doing these things, your motivation for living as a new creation, your motivation for being so abundantly distinct is not because some guy in a chief's shirt was telling you, be distinct, but because you have been saved. And as a result of that, you love and respect and value and treasure God above all else. Therefore, if you were a slave, you'd have no problem obeying your master because the situation is eclipsed by the glory of God in your life. Do good from a sincere heart because your motivations for marriage, your motivations for being a good kid to your parents, your motivation for being a good parent someday, your motivation for serving and ministering within the church, your motivation of being a good slave, your motivation over and over and over and over again for every specific area and aspect of your life is because you love God and seek His pleasure. And as a result of that, you would go out and do whether your slave whether you're free, do good and you will receive back from the Lord. Now, it's probably not a material possession kind of a thing to receive back from the Lord and that's very much so the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the uh, typically TV evangelistic kind of gospel that you would see where somebody is saying, really the best thing that you could be doing right now and, and I'm, I'm sensing something. I'm sensing somebody out there in the world who... Um, stub their toe. God has you. God has you. I know there's 30 million viewers and the chances of somebody having stubbed a toe within the last 10 years are pretty high. So, therefore, and you're, uh, you're sick, uh, you have some kind of a virus. Okay, go ahead and donate twenty nine ninety five, and God will give you back a million. Let it flood in. It's not what it's talking about. It's not what it's talking about the good that is being performed and that is being done that you would receive back from the Lord is immaterial. That's the specific motivation. The immaterial attitude and immaterial motivation can lead to you being kind and good towards others with material possessions, but that's not the motivation or the issue at hand. The issue is, is that you're doing goodwill, goodwill service that is rendered with goodwill to the Lord and not to man, knowing whatever good that somebody does, he'll receive back from the Lord. It's a quality of life that is received. It's being able to experience this life with that joy and satisfaction of your relationship between you and God. And when that's valuable, there's an eclipsing of the negativity thing, things that you could be going through. There's a couple of things to walk away with before we close. With these concepts in mind, it's important to begin to recognize that this passage of Scripture teaches us that your motivations are greatly important. Your motivations are largely important and are taken into very serious consideration by the New Testament. Again, it's not just simply enough to do something, but it has to be something that is done from pure godly motivations. That is the number one difference that would exist within your life doing something that is glorifying Lord, even as we've joked about in the past where, you know, how do I brush my teeth under the glory of the Lord? How do I do something menial, mundane? How do I do these particularly low tasks and I do them under the glory of the Lord? That they would have infinite value. That I would infinitely please God Almighty. 
by doing something so mundane. There's a motivation aspect to that. Your motivation is abundantly important. Why am I doing this? Why am I hanging out with a group of people? Why am I spending time in youth group? Why am I doing something missions-oriented? Why is it that I'm doing whatever it is that I'm doing within my life? Am I doing it because it's expected? People-pleasers. Am I doing it because this is the tradition? People-pleasers. Am I doing it because whatever reason... This is how it normally goes. This is whatever it is. It's the wrong motivation. It's bad motivation. I'm going to do something because I want to be pleasing to the Lord. I'm doing this because this is something that I believe is important to God. Simplify the motivations that you have. The term here for sincere and pure heart means simplification. Simplify the motivations that you have. Don't overcomplicate why you would do something or not do something. Don't have this extravagant list of reasons as to why you would do something. Simplify it down to that specific reason. I'm doing this because I love the Lord. I'm doing this because I don't want to be a people pleaser. I want to be a God pleaser. Then from there, these other reasons can begin to take care of themselves. It refers to sincerity, pure motivations. Not motivations to do something because you would take advantage of somebody else or to manipulate somebody else. And that you would do it generously. It's not a one-time motivational factor. Paul's not saying, if you as a slave were to do this, you could chalk it off your list and say, there it is, I exercised one moment of obedience, therefore God is pleased with me, and I can move on acting like an idiot. There it is, I obeyed my parents once. There it is, I loved my wife once. There it is, I served somebody else within the church once. There it is, I did this once. There it is, I did this once. Leave me alone now. I did what was required of me. There it is, I preached the gospel to somebody once. There it is, I helped somebody else once. Whatever it is. Generously means ongoingly, means continuously, means abundantly. It's qualitative as well as quantitative. Number two. Your attitudes and your behaviors matter before the Lord. Don't forget that every moment of your life is known by God. Every moment, every detail, every bad click, Every bad word, every bad encounter, every moment that we thought was private is fully public and available to God. Every single moment is known by God and your attitudes and your behaviors matter before Him. Don't bite into the same problem that common evangelicalism will bite into, that forgiveness means that it doesn't matter anymore. Forgiveness means that it mattered the most to God. That's why He sent His Son. And because it matters so significantly to God, that's why it should matter most significantly to us. He still disciplines sin. He still is offended by sin. He still is bothered by sin. Every moment is known by God. Number three, your interactions with others matter significantly. This also relates to the idea of motivations and that we should never be motivated by receiving proper attributions, accolades, or commendations from others. Look at me, I'm serving. Look at all the things that I do within the church. What is it that you do within the church? Right now we've got ministry comparisons going on here. Well, you're failing in your ministry because look at all the good stuff that I'm doing in my ministry. When we saw from Ephesians that every ministry is essential for the proper functioning of the body of Christ. I'm obeying. Look at me and how good I'm doing with the Word of God. Look at all the times. It bothers me so much that in Santa Fe, there were so many people that were so mystical that they would talk to me and they would say to me, man, I couldn't sleep last night and I realized that it was the Lord waking me up to read my Bible and to pray. So I woke up and I read my Bible and I prayed. I'm not worthy. I slept through the night. <laughs> Unspiritual me and all of the different 
things that God is doing, so grateful He's got you to wake up in the middle of the night. And I don't know, some of the circumstances may be true that God does that. God would wake somebody up and desire that they would read His Word, desire that they would pray, but why would that not be such a personal and intimate moment between you and your Heavenly Father? Why do I have to know about it? Number four, your main focus in every aspect of life needs to be the will of God. Every aspect of our lives, the main focus needs to be the will of God. God is concerned with your holiness. God is concerned with your purity. God is concerned with your worship. In all of those areas, that fear and trembling needs to exist. Am I worshiping God through faithful service as a slave? Am I worshiping God through faithful service in the marketplace? In the workplace, nobody uses marketplace anymore. It's called a store. Am I, use, am I worshiping God through faithful service in the workplace? Through faithful service to somebody in authority? These are important questions to begin to ask. Next, your master is Christ in heaven. You are enslaved. You are a slave. You are living right now. If Christ is in you, you are living as his slave. Your life belongs to him. He has the ability to charge you. He has the ability to decree what you should be doing. Is that valuable to you? Are you willing to participate in that? Are you willing to receive your marching orders from Christ, your master? Next, don't worry about accolades or rewards from anybody else other than the Lord. What does that do for you? When you stop and you think about God and His infinite grace and His infinite wisdom, His infinite mercy, His infinite love, sent His Son to die upon the cross so that you would be saved, so that you would be brought in eternity future, and then in addition to those things, said, if you do good, you will be rewarded. What does that do for you? Does that excite you? Does that discourage you? Or are you like, oh man, I got to do something so that I can get a reward? Lastly, you'll notice as well within our passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul didn't just concern himself only with slaves. He looked at the masters. Those who are in positions of authority, if that is you someday, if that is you now where you have some kind of a position of authority over others, recognize you're still Christ's slave. And there's no authority that's been given to you Sorry, there's no authority that you have that hasn't been given to you. Just like Pilate, who had the authority to crucify Christ, Jesus said you wouldn't have had that authority unless it had been given to you from heaven. Don't try to gain obedience of those under you through threats. Don't try to be rude. Don't try to be mean. Don't try to be sarcastic to try to get people to do things. But live as somebody who is fearful, somebody who is trembling, somebody who's not an eye pleaser, somebody who's not a people pleaser, all those different kind of things within our passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you have given to us this abundant supply of knowledge and information in the Word of God. Pray, Father, that you would help us to not be people pleasers, but to be God pleasers to focus on, a, on a, your opinion and that that would matter most to us and not upon the opinions of others. And we pray that you'd be glorified by that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.